Authentic Life with Josiah Ball. Welcome to season four of Your Authentic Life. Wow, I'm excited that we are here. We have made it to season four. Uh, I'm sorry if you missed it for the entire month of January, but we are here now, February season four, kicking it off with my friend, Nick Poe. We're also kicking off a YouTube channel where you can watch us talk rather than just listen. If you're a watcher, go and watch. If you're not a watcher, continue listening. I don't care what you do, but link for the new YouTube channel is in the bio. We'll be posting all episodes now uh, on this. I may post bonus episodes on there from past interviews or videos I have as well. Uh, that I think you would enjoy. So here we are. <coughs> this is now an interview, our first interview of season four with my friend, Nick Poe. I hope you enjoy. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Your Authentic Life. We are now in season four of this podcast. And welcome to the new YouTube channel for those who are watching this. Uh, if you're listening to it, we do have a YouTube channel now and you can go and find it. The link is in the description for that YouTube channel. Go and watch it. Uh, today, I have an awesome guest. We've been wanting him on the podcast for a long time. and We finally landed a time to talk. We have Nick Poe with us, founder of Tall Pine Books. Uh, I met Nick a while back when I was looking to publish my book and he helped me along the way. So welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thanks, friend. Pleasure. Absolutely. So I don't even know. It was like, what, 2020? No, 2019 when we first started talking about Authentic You book and kind mm -hmm. of kindled this, like what was happening and stuff. But tell us a little bit about what Tall Pine Books is and who you are and what, what came about of this. Funny enough, my background um, was originally in church ministry, local church ministry, um, where I wore a lot of hats, yeah. as local church ministry folks often do. Right. Um, so I bounced around, you know, uh, on one day I'm speaking to the youth, the next day I'm fixing a water heater. It's just kind of mm -hmm. a little bit of everything. And I did that for some time in my early 20s, a four-year uh, sentence. We'll call it a sentence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a four-year bit. And uh, at the end of that, it was a fruitful time and I learned a lot. And I kind of needed my off-ramp. Because yeah. for me, I knew, okay, there's some sort of ministry-related calling here. I need to be doing something that's um, expanding the influence of biblical truth. But what does that look like? I don't want to be the typical man in a collar. I didn't feel like I had this sort of traditional ministry role. So I needed to off-ramp and sort of occupy whatever it is that God had for me. And ultimately what came about was at the end of my time, um, I had a area pastor who approached me and he was like, hey, I have a sermon series that I wrote, or sorry, I, I preached in 2006, mm -hmm. and I'd like to turn it into a book. Uh, what would that look like? That was basically the gist of the conversation. And so I developed a rate for transcribing and developing and producing this material for him. Gave him wow. a quote. Here's what I can do it for. And he kind of knew I, I had been in writing. I had already published one book myself. And so I was kind of geared in that direction. I've written for most of my life. Um, 
But this, and he looked at me and said something interesting. After he agreed to the project and I start working on it and we produce this manuscript, he said, um, he said, you know, I think this is a, a stream that could become a river mm. in your life, both in terms of income and work and influence. This might be something you pry into. Wow. And so it was during that season shortly after where I kind of realized, okay, we could produce a full-blown sort of half ministry, half business here, where we're developing sermons from books, we're doing developmental editing. And at first, when I launched the business, that was all we did. It was called Pulpit to Page, catchy okay. little alliteration yeah. there. Uh, and that was all I focused on was sermon to book work. And gosh, Within three months of launching it, I was ready to go full time. We had enough clientele, um, and and as things grew, we kind of realized, okay, we're doing th- stuff beyond sermon to book work. Let's rebrand. Let's do something more broad. So we had developed Tall Pine Books, which within this company we've since hired and expanded, and we have um, a full range of publishing options. We do a lot of design work, ghostwriting, etc. So it's really become something bigger, but that's sort of the uh, the origin story. So wow. we kind of feel like we're occupying a foot in each world in ministry and in business. Wow, that's awesome! Yeah, and um, I think I discovered you guys through a friend because I was like, "How am I gonna do this?" Everybody talks about, "Oh, go through Amazon." I'm like, "I don't want to do all that kind of work." I don't, and, you know, it's like I don't know who to get to edit this. I don't know anything, and. Um, Tall Pine, you know, you and the your company just made it so, um, you know, it made me relaxed in when I when I wanted to put out this book, and I feel like it gives like you know an extra umph to have it like oh there's actually something behind it rather than just you know me putting it out as well, which is really cool, and it's yeah. like it, you made it so simple for anybody who's creative in a way but doesn't know how to do that side the business side of it and stuff so. Uh, one for awesome. myself, I appreciate you taking that call and going after it and using your creative element, so um, so others could do it as well. Awesome, man. When you when you wrote that first book, did you um, did you have an idea of how you wanted to get it out there before finishing the book, or did you finish it and then go, "Oh crap, how do we produce a book from this?" Right. Uh, I basically wrote yeah I, I wrote like probably half of it before i figured like i don't know what to do i'm writing and then mm-hmm. discovers discovered you guys and i was like okay that's this is uh this is great and then i think through that journey with you guys you know creating the the cover we did a couple of revisions and all of it i think it just all came together so yeah there's always a moment of relief when someone finishes a book yeah and there's a moment of panic when they go oh i right. guess I need some work here, cover right. design, typesetting, distributing the book, author copies. There's a lot to think about. Right. And in, unfortunately, in the indie publishing space, especially, there's a lot, there's there's grifters and mm-hmm. um, there's people who wear masks and sort of pose as, well, you know, we're the good, noble publisher and we're going to do great things for your work. And they end up ripping off authors or... Oh, yeah. We've, I mean, there's been a couple big indie publishers who have failed and gone bankrupt and for ripping off clients, basically. Mm-hmm. And so in this space that we're in, there's a stigma around like, quote, vanity publishers or indie publishers. And so we've worked hard to just provide um, 
We've worked hard to not be criminals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty low bar. Right. Um, and so uh, we wanted to reverse the reputation that this space has. For a yeah. while, we set up sort of a fund where we were doing um, client work for free, pro bono, because clients, so many clients have been ripped off by other publishers. Mm-hmm. We started taking them on and trying to bring some restoration there. One wow. pastor locally gave five grand to this publisher in California. They produced a front cover image and sent it to him, and he never heard from them again. Wow. So that kind of stuff happens in this space because folks go into publishing having no clue what they should expect, what they should be paying, what's normal, what's not. So we're trying to be somewhat of a clarifying force in this space. I love that. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I get random calls or emails from people who've like, oh, we saw your book on whatever and you got some great reviews and we want to turn it into a movie. I'm like, how are you going to turn this book into a movie? Like it's, you know, you know, it's all scams and some sort of way, but um, it's great that you created that space where people, you know, I guess the word would be trust. You build trust with people um, and you have rapport over, over time and what you've done. And um, yeah, it's really, really great. So what's the, what's the process of taking a, like, you know, a five-part sermon mm-hmm. and putting it into a book. Yeah. Um, step one, take a deep breath. Mm-hmm. Um, step two, sit down at your computer, put in some headphones and transcribe. Yeah. Now, a lot of uh, book developers will use automated software to transcribe sermons and things. Uh, the problem with it is AI is not great. At right. capturing the religious vernacular. Mm. There's a lot of niche words that are used, especially as you get more and more niche in like charismatic faith or Lutheran faith or whatever. There's a set of lingo used that robots are just really bad at capturing. Right. So you have to manually transcribe the material. So for me, it's um, getting down almost sentence by sentence what's being spoken in that sermon as I'm getting it down. I'm sort of trying to arrange it, Mm -hmm. um, trying to create chapter headings, subheadings, and build a topical skeleton for the book as I'm transcribing. And as you're transcribing, you're cutting out waste, the ums, the uhs, the false starts, the rabbit trails where you're like, not in a million years will this make the book. Um, You're cutting some of those things, making editorial decisions. And then once you have that initial draft down, it's going to be rough, right? It's Mm -hmm little better than a raw transcription. Then comes the arrangement, developmental editing, um, creating good sentence structure and flow, thinking about word choice. All the while, you are working to retain the author's voice. So this is the key with ghostwriting is we're not injecting our own voice, we're amplifying the author's. And it's difficult because what 90% of communication is nonverbal. Right. This is through facial expression, movement of hands, tone. When you get words on a page, black ink on white paper, right. you've cut out 90, 90% of your ability to communicate. Right. All you have left is sentence structure. So retaining an author's voice in a unique fashion is particularly challenging. But we're trying to do that yeah. um, so that people read their own book and they go, yeah, that sounds like me. That sounds like something I would say. Yeah. Um, if it's, you know a Southern preacher with a simple vocabulary. Um, the, the phrase here to after 
like Shakespeare is probably not going to be used. Right. Exactly. So <laughs> we're avoiding these sorts of gimmicks and uh, trying to retain the author's unique voice. Um, and, and once that process is done and we have that first draft in place, we'll send it to the author and they're able to review it, do revisions, make changes of their own, customize it as needed. And from there, we continue with proofreading and last minute checks. That's the 10,000 foot overview of the process. Yeah, uh, we, we have some clients who are very particular from the pulpit about how they deliver a sermon. Mm-hmm. And because of that, like Spurgeon, for example, he's not- he notoriously never uttered a word in the pulpit that he had not first pre-written. Really? Um, yeah. So you have clients like that where direct transcription is almost good enough in itself for a book. You have others who who do, I mean, what is referred to as inspired preaching, where they're more just flowing with it. And mm-hmm. with that, you end up with a fair bit of waste that ends up on the cutting room floor. Right. Uh, we try to ebb and flow with each client and sift through um, what editorial involvement works best. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause like I'll, I'll read like a John Mark Homer book and listen to his message. And it's like almost verbatim. Like you can almost just listen to him and you're mm-hmm. reading his book, you know? And yeah. then there's others where it's like, you can listen to his, you know, I'll read like, I don't know, like Craig Rochelle's books and it may be on a topic he's preached before, but how it's written is different or Levi Lusco or any of those guys. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit different in the writing. Cause I mean, either if they're having a ghostwriter or whatever, I don't you never know who's, who has like somebody else writing it or helping or, mm-hmm. you know, you'll see things in it. Like, Oh, I'm sitting on a plane right now as I write this part, you know, in, in some things I'm like, is he actually sitting on the plane or is did somebody else write that for him? You know, yeah. or did he write that and send it to the person? You know, I think it's really cool to like know how different people write their own books and stuff. But um, yeah. has your, um, with your book, have you found yourself speaking on things from the book or was oh, yeah. the book informed by stuff you spoke on prior? What's, what's your overlap like? Um, I think a little bit of both. Um, I, I already had spoken, I guess trying to think of the timeline of when it came out and where I was at. Um, 20, it came out in 20 February. Well, yeah, February. I think we launched January, February of 21. We launched the book out. So in 2020, it was the writing process of it. Mm-hmm. I was already preaching and talking about some of that stuff um so i already had written a message on like you know chapter i don't know i think it's like chapter two or three i use like a spider-man illustration and Mm -hmm. uh i already had preached a message with that to my youth group at the time you know so and then other things it was just like i sat at a there's one one chapter i think it was the mat the one on mass i was sitting at a coffee shop just writing Mm -hmm. the whole that whole chapter it was done in like a day Um, so just, just from, Hey, this is something that I've been thinking of and researched and now I'm going to write it. So I think it was, it was just like a hodgepodge of like all that kind of stuff. So I already had preached it or taught it. It was stuff that was in me. And then, yeah. Did you find that, um, you got, I guess I should ask it like this. Did anything surprise you as you were writing? Like, Oh, I didn't realize I believed that. Like you clarified where you were at with certain things in a new way when you put oh, yeah. the page. Oh yeah. Like there's certain things like, you know, I, I think I wrote something like, you know, I've been, I've been very vocal about, I mean, even in the book, you'll, you know, you see, you've seen it. Like I, I was very vocal about the, 
how God saw us. And it was a risk mm. for me because I'm like, I'm not the best theologian in the world. I'm kind of going off of just things that I feel like have been revelation to me um, mm-hmm. in my relationship with God. And I, for me, it was like, I'm taking a bold stance to like, I'm not the kind of person I'm like, oh, I'm going to, I used to be this. I'm going to go slay those sacred cows of people and stuff like that. Like, I'm, <laughs> that's not my attitude uh-huh. um, when I was writing it. But there's some things in there. I was like, this could really put set people off. Like yeah. so, simple, the simplest thing is like, like I said, I'm going to, I'm not going to talk about hell when I talk about Jesus because mm-hmm. his entire life is about love and restoring and stuff like that. I said, it's about the relationship, not about where you're going to go when you die. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's kind of like, that kind of stuff was like the um, epitome of what I was like in awe of in that time as I was mm-hmm. writing it. And you know, as I continue, I was like, wow, this is, this is cool. This is great stuff I'm discovering. So <laughs> I, uh, it's so true. I tell people I did a creative writing workshop in Dallas. The, uh, I guess it's a little bit a month or so now. Um, but I, I told the class, I said, I, I tend to believe that you cannot know what it is you believe about any given subject mm-hmm. until or unless you, you write about it. Wow. Now you can have a cursory understanding of something or have you have a pretty good idea of what you believe, but to fully flesh out what it is I believe about a subject, yeah, you have to write about it. Because in that leap from head or heart to fingertips, whether you're writing longhand or clacking on a keyboard, in that leap, there is a clarification that takes place. Yeah. Writing is not just a way to to express what you believe, it's a way to figure out what you believe. I love that. And <clears throat> It does act as the ultimate clarify clarifier, not just over theological topics, the mm-hmm. Trinity or cessationism or whatever. Um, but just recently, I was making financial decisions for our business, boring financial matters over tax or whatever. And I was very confused, like, what's my take? What kind of decisions am I going to make now that impact the business long term? I wasn't sure where I was. I felt a lot of confusion. And so the solution for me was writing a one-page essay. And that's what I did. So I write a one-page essay, not written to anyone in particular, but just explaining and describing where I'm at and what decisions have to be made. And of course, what you end up with at the end of that writing is way more clarity than you had before. I may not know exactly what I need to do, but I know what I shouldn't do. Right. I know where I don't want to be. So there are these added layers of clarity that come when you put pen to page. And so I'm always curious with writers um, did you find the writing process to be clarifying mm. or to be a, a, a process of distillation? Yeah. Right. This is, um, this is what people should do when they're preaching sermons. This is what you should do when you're writing material. You need to be a distillery. Mm. I like whiskey. I think you enjoy whiskey. How yeah. is it processed through distillation, right. right? You're taking a liquid, you're heating it up and you're collecting a newer, more pure form of that liquid in a separate vat. Wow, And this is exactly what writing does, is you're taking this whole mess of information, this sort of impure information, this muddled mess of thoughts and ideas, and through the writing process, you're clarifying, you're fine-tuning, and you're collecting a smaller, pure, edited batch of ideas that can then be handed to someone for enjoyment. So writing is tantamount to intellectual distillation. Wow. I love that. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. Cause it took me about two had been yeah, when I turned 25, 26 is when I always knew I was gonna write, 
I've always mm-hmm. been a writer. I've always been creative, music, whatever it was. I always knew I was going to write books. I have a bunch in my head that I know I need to write. Um, mm-hmm. As I'm writing, as I was saying before we pressed record, and you know, I have one in the works. Um, but it this book, I felt like I'm writing it and I'm learning what it actually means to be the authentic you. Mm. Um, at the same time, like, and so there was times when I'm like, should I be writing this book? I'm not an expert on this topic. I'm not mm-hmm. the person that, um, is, you know, has fully lived out what I've believe, what mm-hmm. I truly believe about this topic. Um, and that's why I think it took me that many years to write it from like 25 to, you know, 27, mm-hmm. um, took me two years to finally do it. And towards the end, it was like the speed of process of writing it. Right. So it's like, I had like two chapters written when I turned 25 and then kind of put a pause on it. And that's kind of what's happening with this expand book too. Cause a lot has happened in my past year and a half where I was like, I started writing it a year and a half ago or had the idea mm-hmm. of it. And now it's like, it's been on pause and now I'm in the place where I'm like, okay, I can go back to that. And I'm learning more of what it looks like and the experiences I'm going through as I, I guess I have a focus on the topic itself. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I had a guy send me his, what was it? His doctoral dissertation recently. Mm-hmm. I don't know, hundred page essay, basically a book mm-hmm. on this particular topic. And these, these essays, these dissertations are seen as like authoritative well-researched documents that instruct people yeah they're you know it's a very qualified position but the funny thing is you don't write the dissertation because you got your phd right writing the dissertation is part of obtaining the phd that's good so it's not that you have to be qualified fully and completely on a given subject matter in order to write about it yeah it's in the process of writing about it that you gain the qualification Wow, You see that in academia, but I think it plays out also in independent publishing as well. Yeah, There's a lot of people who fail to write because they feel like, ah, what do I know? We actually know quite a bit and you're going to learn quite a bit more if you decide to start researching and writing. Wow. That's great. That's awesome. So your team, is it like, is everybody local or you just built it over time all over the place? Like you have somebody in California or is it like a hybrid of both? What's that look like? Uh, Both. A couple local. We've got, yeah, an office here in in my hometown. Um, My project manager works remote now. He was uh, in in office full time. He had a kid and I thought, yeah, you want to be there at home and not miss those moments. So remote work has been just fine for us. Um, and then I've got an editorial team. Most of them are in um, the Midwest with a couple ranging beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's somewhat hybrid. The, the remote thing, I don't know how I feel about it yet. Yeah. I mean, we're everything shifted in 2020. And I think a lot of independent companies are trying to figure out uh, the best path forward. But yeah, yeah. the team is um, it, it, I, I try to be careful, like with my edit with my editors, for example. Um, you could just go online and hire any proofreader or editor to do yeah. work reviewing your manuscript. But we've not taken that approach because we're dealing with theological concerns. We're dealing with biblical worldview. And so we've been, we've worked really hard to vet people, yeah, requiring them to be endorsed by other editors or leaders that we know. 
And from there, we can add them to the roster and start working with them possibly. Um, but yeah, we've been very careful to make sure that the people who have their hands on the projects for our clients know this lingo and know this world. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. precious material. People spend a lot of time working on it. They don't want to hand it over to somebody who doesn't get them. Right. Right. And that, I think that's what was really cool. You know, with my experience with you guys, like, you know, you and I got on the phone and talked about it. You asked all the questions about my book. It wasn't just like, Hey, yeah, just send us it. We'll deal with it. And then it, it was very, you built that trust with me and um, yeah. cared about what I wanted from the book. Um, it wasn't just a check mark, you getting paid and all that. I really felt like you cared about what I was expressing. And uh, I think that's rare and people are looking for that and they just don't know where to look. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just, I think that's what's cool about the culture you're creating within tall pine books. Um, is there, there's a cool, I guess a cool, interesting question that hit my brain. Um, have you guys gotten books where you're just like, no, we're not going to work on this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've had to reject a few ideas. We have like, we're a publisher, so we don't have to agree yeah. with every single theological point that every one of our books makes. Right. It's just not, it's just not required. We're not a, a theological institute. We're a publisher. We're a platform. We want to help people get ideas out there. Plus we don't know all the answers ourselves. Um, but there've been a few, yeah, we do have editorial standards. So there's a few that have been, um, I guess, more egregious. One was uh, a gentleman had rewritten the the Bible mm. um, in his own language. Like not, not like it was in English, but like his English, like it was just yeah. a very, so he had an idea to just upend the scriptures and publish some new version of the Bible. We weren't real interested in touching that. Yeah. Um, one gentleman um, wanted to do a book on the biblical merits of smoking pot, mm. um, which was not, you know, he wasn't making a case for medical weed or whatever. It was just more like a, I think he was introducing a sub-religion under Christianity that in, that sort of orbited around marijuana. Interesting. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so that one we kind of thought, yeah, better not. My pastor was um, just telling me about a weed church. Uh, he really? just talked about it on Sunday. Yeah, about this 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 group of people that created a whole church around weed. Like they have worship songs around weed. They have. It was. He's like, it shocked me when I read it and stuff. So I was just, that's funny that you just said that. <laughs> so. That's so funny, man. That's hilarious. Yeah. So that <laughs> maybe he maybe he goes there. Maybe. Maybe he's the lead pastor and I rejected him. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So there's been a few where they've not really met editorial standards. But otherwise, you know, the biggest issues we've run into once a book is out is we've had people write memoirs and life stories and journeys. And um, within it, you know, let's say you have a, a lady who's gone through an abusive marriage or something. Then she gets out of that and later starts writing her story. Well, when she begins to tell the details about the marriage she was in and ex-husband's still alive, he he sees and can prove demonstrably, I'm identified in this book. And if she says things that are derogatory about him, he could sue for defamation. Wow. So this is the reason most people protect identities within books, because yeah. you don't want to face defamation. This is the U.S. You can sue over anything. And uh, so... 
you know, hiding identity is easy in a memoir with in most cases, but when it comes to like an, a former spouse, it gets dicey. Yeah. So we've had people unpublish books. We've had people um, completely rewrite or cut stories and sections out of their books yeah. because they released it and it caused a shockwave that ran through the family. I'm sure. Of course, on our end, there's no way we can measure any of that or predict any of that. We didn't right. write the book. We don't know the scenarios. We've had some authors get some rude awakenings on the back end. Yeah. Wow. That's that's hard. Yeah, it's funny because yeah. like that's one of the things because I talk about my divorce in my book a little bit and like what God did with me there. And I try to do it in the most honoring way. Like yeah. obviously there was struggle, obviously there's stuff going on, but like mm -hmm. did it in the most honoring way. I you know, mm -hmm. I could. And I think, you know, I haven't had any backlash yet. Now I'm, I might now that I'm talking about it, but um <laughs> But overall, I think it was just like a positive, you know, a positive outcome with like how I talked about it and um, didn't really give any names, though. Anybody who knows me knows. But mm -hmm. it's it's I think it's just, you know, you just don't think of those things always. And right. um, it's always always interesting with the things that could happen. Yeah. When you when you start putting pen to page and you write about these vulnerable areas. Did you find vulnerability on page to be difficult? Not for me. Um, yeah. I think I'm just a very vulnerable person. And actually, if in the past year or two, since I've been married to Abby, um, mm -hmm. really, she's um, helped me to not be as vulnerable um, with many people, um, especially like when it came to vocally on social media and stuff. And it's really, actually really cool to like not not be as vulnerable. Um, and I had Andy Andrew on here once and she even said, be vulnerable with the few authentic with the many. Um, mm, and it's a good word. Yeah. And that, that was like, that, that was like that, that's my, that's my quote right there. Like, that's what I need spoken over my life because I was, I would say I was authentic and vulnerable with the many. Um, yes. and, and cause uncomfortability i think in people too so so doing it on paper wasn't hard um but you know i think even like you know it was just super raw and honest in the book i mean it's called authentic you right but uh honest about like where i was at and what i was even writing to god in that and um so i think it you know it's that part was not hard i think the hard part was what are people going to think when they're seeing I'm writing this stuff, you know, being a youth pastor at the time, like mm. my students are going to read this, my, you know, all these mm. people, I think so that, that caused a little bit of like hesitation, but I really mm. felt this is what needs to be said. Yeah. And that's funny. Your wife has helped you to shore up your discretion a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Great. I, usually people have the opposite problem where they mm. shy away from vulnerability or transparency. And I've told authors, your job on page is not to impress the reader, but to level with the reader. Mm. They're not they're not looking to be impressed. They're looking to see authenticity. Yeah. They're not looking for perfection. They're looking for authenticity. Yeah. And many shy away from it. So personal shortcomings, they'll gloss over. Um, you know, areas of transparency that could really benefit the reader, where the reader feels understood they'll cut it out of their wow. book. I've seen that a lot, man. There is one memoir in particular with a gentleman. I won't be too specific so as not to identify 
the book is no longer in distribution, so I, I don't think it would be an issue, but um, this gentleman had a story that was just wild, heart-wrenching, horrific childhood, mm. um, and an amazing story of coming full circle. He's got a great job, great family. Just It's just the real turnaround story memoir yeah. that anybody would enjoy. And he effectively whitewashed his memoir mm. to the point of the trials, the tribulations, the pain points in his upbringing, even stuff that wouldn't sort of damn the family members who did things against him. Right. Even stuff that's just more neutral. He just completely glossed over. Wow. Like he had a crazy deliverance session, manifestation, rolling on the ground, foaming at the mouth, that sort of stuff, right? Yeah. He experienced it. Woke up. They told him after, here's what happened. Wow. And when it came time to actually fine-tune that area of the book, because as a memoir collaborator, I'm like salivating over this story. I'm like, this right. is perfect, you know? Yeah. This has got to be in there. Uh, he completely recut it, reshaped it, and it was basically, um, you know, a minister prayed for me, and I felt great peace, and it changed my life. Wow. The problem is, yes, that statement is factually honest. Right. But it's not fully honest. Yeah. Because there's missing pieces. It's I understand 25%. discretion. And, yeah, exactly. It's 25% <laughs> true. So there's, I get there's discretion. You have to be careful at times. I totally get it. Yeah. The word that you got about authenticity versus vulnerability makes perfect sense. Um, but there's a certain amount of whitewashing that you can do to a memoir or to your own story um, that's just counterproductive. And if you're going mm -hmm. to do that, fine. Just don't, don't go, don't bother writing a book. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, it's, if it's stuff you've gone through and overcome, like that's not even being vulnerable. That's just like, Hey, this is the story I've overcome it. You know, the, the, the whole yep. revelation, the word of the testimony, you know, thing is just, I think it's so important for people to hear mm -hmm. those stories because it's, it's going to do something in them. It's going to, they're going to see and be like, wow, what am I, they're going to look at themselves internally and they're going to need to be vulnerable with somebody um, at some point. But if we're holding back all the problems, all the issues, then it's going to be a problem. Oh, for sure. And you undermine yeah. the power of the testimony if you gloss over it. Yeah. Absolutely. Amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. It's a good lyric, mm -hmm. right? But nobody's going, oh, my God, what a testimony. You said you were lost and now you're found? Yeah. Right? It's just... <laughs> But I mean, even like the story of that guy, you just go and who wrote it, who he was a slave ship guy. And like, he yes. has a whole story there. And yes, exactly. Yeah. We get the snippet. We get the surface. Great yeah. lyric. But when it comes time to like, if, if that guy who wrote the song stood up and shared his story, but all he said was, I once was lost. Now I'm found. I'm found. We'd all yeah. be sitting there going, okay, is there more? Right. <laughs> uh, because when you get into the, the, the juiciness of the story, I was addicted to this for 20 years. Mm. You know, I experienced abuse in this manner for this long. That's when you realize just how far God reached in yeah. to bring about change. And that's what really, yeah, it's important. Yeah. It's really important. Authenticity in that way, when you're when you're sharing your story, which sharing your story is going to work its way into almost any book anyone writes. Yeah. Uh, if you lead with authenticity, it's going to be chef's kiss, impactful to the reader. Yeah. So have you guys um, done any fiction books or like, what has that been like? Very, very little. Yeah. Very, very little. We've done a few novels. 
Um, it's just not the, for our clientele, it's generally not what they're writing. Right. For me personally, in my, in my personal life, um, I'm like a fiction fiend. I read a lot, ton of classic literature. Yeah. Not, it's not exclusively what I read, but I, 70% of what I read, 80% of what I read in my private time is, is classic literature, Dostoevsky. Yeah. And, um, so I, part of me wishes we would publish more fiction, but yeah. our clientele is just mostly centered around nonfiction and instruction and which is good too. There's a, yeah. there's a huge amount of room for that as well. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting to me is in the industry right now, I'm kind of, I'm interested in watching the shift that's occurring where authors are realizing, okay, I've got a book idea. I'm going to write it. They're realizing that they have to niche themselves down in their topic, in their mm -hmm. subject matter a little bit. And authors are starting to ask the question, what, what is my book bringing to the table that other books are not? So before the call, you talked about the premise of your next book and it's, it's a very, it's a unique premise. Yeah. Um, authors are realizing more and more, they have to have that to make it because yeah. there's about three to 4 million books being published per year. Right. <laughs> right. Per year, you know, that's independent and traditional books combined three to 4 million. Most of these are terrible and nobody reads them. And it's just some like fantasy romance novel that eight people buy, right? Most of right. them are like that. Right. But to make it into that category of being read and having influence, there's a certain amount of narrowing of your subject matter that has to take place where you're not just releasing another book on victory or here's another book on the subject of faith. You've got to have a unique take. If you write a book for everybody, you write a book for nobody. Mm. If I ask someone, what's your target reader? And you say, well, every believer. Okay. Right. What you want is that narrow, actually, the believer who is struggling with this. Yeah. Who has this question or that concern. That's who I'm after. Because you don't want everybody to look at your Amazon listing and go, oh, that sounds interesting. And they keep scrolling. Right. You want that small subset of people who see it and go, oh my God, that's exactly where I'm at. Wow. That's who you want to capture. Yeah. And you might go, well, that narrows my sales. No, it doesn't actually through that narrow door of your niche you expand into great sales, way more sales yeah. than you would have if you went broad. Yeah. I was sitting in the uh, 86th floor of the John Hancock building in Chicago in the Signature Lounge talking to a Lithuanian guy. Mm -hmm. And he was having a drink sitting next to me. And I'm just looking at this beautiful view of the skyline. And we talked business. And I told him about the sort of niche that we occupy in our business. And he said, he said to me, you live in the US. There's no such thing as a niche market. Meaning, even if you go narrow, even if you go niche, we have such a big market in the US, there's still millions of people inside of there. Yeah. So don't be afraid to niche down your book. Don't be afraid to niche down your message, your ministry, your platform, whatever it is that you're doing, find that narrow target market because it's probably bigger than you think it is. Wow. Yeah, that's good. That's good for me. You know, because I feel like even with like my book, I was like, this is for the person who just feels like they have to play a part in church and play this, this role. And the role that they're playing is actually not what God ever intended. Um, mm -hmm. Whatever that, I mean, that's pretty broad in itself. And, um, but what it's, I don't know if it's just because me being a youth pastor, it just took off with youth 
and yep. people or people would be like, oh, I'm going to buy this for my my um, granddaughter or my grandson. And, you know, I went to a church of 30 people and gave a little blurb and all, every single person bought it, but it was all for somebody else. And yeah. so it's always, it's always, it was interesting to me, like, okay, you know, there it's very broad who this is for kind of went into it. Like this is for everybody. I mean, in mm-hmm. your book, maybe for everybody, but, mm-hmm. but hearing that it's like, you know, trying to figure out that niche is, is great. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to somebody who just like, you know, I know somebody who is, he definitely could, he has incredible sermon series stuff. He has done, um, years and years of ministry ha- and has just files of all of his old messages and stuff, mm-hmm. but has this like men, like if you, if he wrote a book, hundreds or thousands of people would, would buy it. Mm-hmm. But his thought is somebody else either has already written it or, mm-hmm. or, um, somebody else will write on it better. What would you mm. say to someone like that? Why didn't you use that same criteria before you preached the sermon series? That's good. <laughs> you were studying for these messages. You wouldn't didn't discount yourself or say, hey, I'm not coming Sunday because somebody else is going to preach on this or somebody else will preach on it better. Right. It was good enough for you to plan and prepare and share the sermon from the pulpit to your audience. Why yeah. isn't it good enough for a book? Same yeah. message, different vehicle. Love that. Simple. So just you know, eliminate the criteria and, and get it out there. Yeah. Um, sermons are collecting in archives and they're collecting yeah. dust and they're not living past Sunday. Um, retention is low. People remember one or two things from your sermon, which is fine. That's cognitive flushing. People forget, but they're going to remember those key points, right? Yeah. Um, maybe a key story or whatever. Um, but the gist of it, yeah, it's, it's going to be forgotten and collected in an archive somewhere. And so, I encourage people take those key messages, the ones that you feel are sort of your life message. Yeah. You know, as pastors, pastors, like God, God have mercy on pastors because they, they can't do what the guest ministers do. Guest ministers can show up and preach the sexy dessert sermons. Pastors have to serve vegetables every week, man. Yeah. They got to give the full diet. So there's going to be some sermons that are just obligatory, right? I'm preaching on this topic. It might not be the funnest thing, but we've got to in order to create mature believers. Um, But those messages that are like the life messages, the ones that really jive with that pastor who felt were well-researched, had a unique angle, I encourage them, take those and consider creating a book. For the sake of legacy, your works are going to outlive you. I think it was Miles Monroe who said, the world's run by dead people because dead people wrote books. Mm. Um, so when you're gone, is it going to be an audio archive people can visit to hear your your life message buried in file after file of SoundCloud right. sermons? Or can they find a neat and tidy bound book with your message inside that will live on their shelf forever, that will have that permanence? Wow. Um, I, I would encourage pastors to take a look and see if they could pull something out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it's an easy way to do it. You don't have to sit there and put pen to page for weeks on end. You've already right. written the material when you wrote your sermon. Right. So let's just change the vehicle. Love that. Yeah. I even said like, you know, let's say, you know, somebody who's a pop, popular author out there, let's, you know, they write on the same topic. I said, 
you are reaching other people that that person can't even reach. Even the vicinity of where you're at is like, you're going to like write in such a way where somebody's going to resonate better than they would resonate with that author writing it. And so Mm -hmm. I I think that's an angle to look at it as well. Exactly. Yeah. Part of niche is your built-in audience. Like you mentioned with your first book, topically, the first book could be broad, like it could be received well by a lot of people, but there's a built-in niche, which is your specific audience of young people. Right. And like this pastor we're talking about, I don't know if he's hypothetical or if he's real, but he, yeah, he is real. He, he is real. So he has his, he has a built in, a built in crowd. And there are actually, yeah, there are pastors where I've seen them release books that were on topics that are fairly general, but they had kind of a unique take on the topic. Um, they're books that had been done or had been covered by others before, but they have a slew, like they have a 500 member church where they sell 300 copies to people yeah. who never would buy the the book on the same su- subject of forgiveness by X big name author. Right. And so you're right. That's a completely valid point and a good case for, for publishing. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. we're coming to a close on our time here. I feel like we could talk about this for a long time. Just, I have like two, three more questions. First yeah. question I should have asked in the beginning, how'd you get the name tall pine? <clears throat> It's uh, less spiritual than people would think. Um, I had a buddy who was setting up a little imprint of his own to release like a brand Mm -hmm. for him to release his fiction works under. And he had mentioned that he used to write when he lived in San Francisco. He used to write at a cafe called Tall Pine Cafe. Nice. And that's where he did all of his writing. And so when we needed to switch to a more broad branding I just thought tall pine works, tall pine books. (laughs) I like pine trees. I'm in the woods a lot. I'm a hunter. I like things that are evergreen. There's a certain beauty in January when everything's miserable and there's no leaves on the tree to see a pine, to see an evergreen, to see a spruce. Any conifer that's just green year long, it speaks to that sort of like, um, I guess the metaphor would be fruitful in every season. Yeah. Green and flourishing in every season. So as a company, in every season to have yeah, a certain amount of longevity and fruitfulness. Yeah. So that was sort of the metaphor, but ultimately the origin is yeah, tall pine cafe in San Francisco. Hey, shout out to the cafes. <laughs> awesome. Uh, last, last question. And I want you to kind of plug where people can find you. If they're looking for a place to publish, um, mm-hmm. or if they have a manuscript or they and they don't know what to do, obviously we want them to reach out to you guys. And, um, I'll always promote you to people that are just looking for that because you've been so helpful to me and you will continue to be helpful to me. I know that as I go into this next writing season, um, but the word authenticity, we kind of talked a little bit around it, um, what it was and what it means to you, but what, when you hear the word words, authentic, you, or your authentic life or authenticity, what is what is that? What stands out to you with that? Like, what does it mean to you? Man, that's a great question. I wish I would have come prepared with a really pithy, wonderful, <laughs> powerful definition. Um, I think for me personally, it's uh, a lack of fear, a lack of hesitation, mm. a lack of angst. For me in my own life, if there's ever been a temptation to lose authenticity, it's generally because of fear, Mm. because of a hesitation. I'm anxious. I don't know how I come across. I don't know if I should step out because of how it might look. But when there is a total draining of fear, 
and there's none mm-hmm. left in my soul, there's none left in my heart, that's when I can be authentically me. So awesome. for me, authenticity is an absence of fear. Love that. Yeah. On the, on the fly, did that work? That worked great. Everybody has a different answer and I love it. That's why I always ask it. So Yeah, yeah. Brilliant yeah. question. Thanks. So where can people find you? Tallpinebooks.com. Awesome. Some people say, yeah, they get confused over the name. I hear Tall Pines. Um, what was it? Tall Spruce. There's <laughs> a lot of, uh, but uh, tallpinebooks.com. You can look us up there. We're on social too, although we've neglected our social for way too long. But tallpinebooks.com is our online real estate where you can find us. Awesome. And people can find people's published books on your site too. Yeah, we've got a bookshelf with some past releases. That needs to be updated too. Um, Yeah, you can find past releases there. You can reach out as a contact form, a book submission form. Any inquiries can be channeled to that site. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for uh, taking your time and uh, talking with me today on this first episode of season four of hey. your authentic life. So um, we kicked it off right. So thanks so much. Absolutely. Pleasure, man. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, season four, we're going to have a bunch of different uh, people on here. It's going to be great. Again, go and watch the YouTube if you haven't. Uh, you watch us have this interview on YouTube. You can watch it with your family. Get some popcorn. Listen in. It's a good time. Um, also, if you haven't bought merch yet, go and buy merch. We're going to have a new shirt up next week. So a uh, new design. Go and check it out. Uh, it's going to come up next week. Uh, And tune in next week for our next episode with my friend, Joey. Uh, You're not going to want to miss that. And no, it's not the Joey from Friends. Like I know you're all thinking. It's not him. But So uh, tune in next week. Please go ahead and share this episode with a friend. If you want to write a book or you know somebody who who you think should write a book, send them this episode, get inspired, uh, and go and write that book. Use tall pine books. They are incredible. They just want to help you get your word out there in a, in a book. So go and do it. Also, if you are interested and didn't know I wrote a book, I mean, if you've been with the podcast this long, you might have known I wrote a book, but if you still didn't know, and now you know, go and buy the book. It's go by going to www.helloimjosiah.com or just search up authentic you living out the masterpiece life on amazon.com you will find it on there so thanks again see you next week